HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit surreyfarms.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome to Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and we're broadcasting live from Roberta's at 261 Moore Street in Bushwick, where brunch is being served. My guest today on the phone is Dr. Richard Raymond. In 2005, after a long career in family medicine and as Nebraska's chief medical officer, Dr. Raymond was appointed the Undersecretary for Food Safety at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Over the next three years, Dr. Raymond was responsible for overseeing the policies and programs of the Food Safety and Inspection Service. In semi-retirement now, he writes several blogs on food safety, which is how he came to my attention, has consulted with law firms on foodborne illness cases, is a frequent lecturer on food safety and public health, and is a food safety and public health consultant for Elanco, the animal health branch of Eli Lilly. Dr. Raymond serves as a board member of the National Multiple Sclerosis Colorado Wyoming chapter, and he is engaged in volunteer work with that organization. Welcome to the program, Doc! Thank you, Katie. It's a real pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. I always read your blog with great interest. Um, I should say to my listeners that um, Doc Raymond is a regular contributor to MeetingPlace.com, as you all know. That's one of my favorite publications. Um, so let's jump right into it. Since uh, you have this um, fabulous credential with Elanco, the animal health branch of Eli Lilly, let's talk a little bit about antibiotic use in the food food chain. So with the emergence of ever more antibiotic-resistant microbial strains of salmonella, E. coli, and other foodborne diseases, do you think the recently proposed FDA guidelines calling for voluntary withdrawal of antibiotics from livestock feed and water go far enough in addressing these scary new superbugs? Yes, I to make it short, I do believe that that's a, a good uh, forward step. The FDA already uh, you know, has authority to limit what 
antibiotics can be used both in human and animal medicine. I think they've done a, a really pretty good job of protecting uh, the, the antibiotics that are most critical to human medicine, like methicillin and ciprofloxin and some of the others that they just don't allow any use in animals. I know, but we already have methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, right? We do, so, but methicillin is not used in animals. It's not used husbandry. in animals, right. And they just withdrew cephalexin, the whole cephalosporin class, last year, as I recall. Is that correct? Uh, except for therapeutic uses. I think mm-hmm. they still can use cephalosporins, like, for instance, for mastitis, or if a companion animal has a pneumonia or something like that. They removed the cephalexins from as growth promotants, which, Katie, the actual, if you go back, and I have... 2010 and look at the FDA's webpage to see what antibiotics were sold for animal use in 2010. The cephalosporin category actually was only 0.2% mm-hmm. of total use in What animals. was the biggest uh, category? Uh, tetracyclines mm-hmm. and ionophores. But I thought tetracycline about, was essential to human medicine, is it not? No. No, the old tetracyclines, it's oxytetracycline and chlortetracycline, are the two that have been used extensively as growth promotants in, in the animal right. industry. And those two drugs are just not used in human medicine at all. They, they're, they're old, they're old-fashioned, and there's much better uh, myosin drugs than mm-hmm. the old tetracyclines. Interesting. Um, now, these guidelines that the FDA put into place on, um, in April of this past spring are only voluntary. They're not mandatory. And um, as a doctor who treats humans, don't you feel a little concerned that uh, the three-year withdrawal period that they're proposing is perhaps not quite fast enough to make this um, outpace the growth of superbugs? Again, the medicines, the antibiotics that they are focusing on with this gradual uh, with voluntary withdrawal is primarily the tetracycline class and the ionophores, which are not used at all in human medicine, and they're they're phasing them out as growth promotants. Mm-hmm. Well, it's the it's the let's just clarify that it's the sort of constant subtherapeutic use of these drugs that promotes these superbugs. Am I right there? Um, no, Katie, not n- not exactly. And, and the use the word subtherapeutic uh, is, is a word that gets tossed around a lot, but it always bothers me a little bit because there are different doses for different purposes. Mm-hmm. And so, if you're using a, an antibiotic to control uh, what could be an outbreak or to prevent an outbreak, you're going to use a smaller dosage than if you're actually treating an infection like a mastitis in a, in a dairy cow. Yeah, of course. And so, so some people call those subtherapeutic doses, but they're actually doses approved by the Food and Drug Administration mm. for specific purposes. I find this. I, I have to admit to you, Doc. I find this all extremely troubling. I mean, when I read reports, oh, oh, and let me just digress for one second. Last yep. night, and I didn't get a chance to forward this to you, but I strongly recommend that you read it. Um, there is a devastating article in uh, the Bloomberg News about um, sort of the food safety situation in the United States and and some of the great failings um, that have come about. And one of the things that they mention, although they don't mention it quite enough, is the emergence of these uh, micro- these antibiotic-resistant pathogens, such as Salmonella Heidelberg, which was uh, implicated in that massive ground turkey recall from Cargill last year. Um, and that is a clear indication that using 
antibiotics in the food chain, meaning as a growth promotant or even to prevent an outbreak at a subtherapeutic, and forgive me for using that word, um, level is contributing to the growth of these pathogens. So I, I have to ask you again, what, why doesn't the medical community speak out more about uh, their concerns in terms of how they are going to be able to treat humans who are acquiring these diseases? Well, first of all, if we could just call them low-dose Okay, let's call it low dose. I think we would be technically correct. I'm not trying to split hairs and and dodge the question. But, uh, for instance, in human medicine, if someone has an artificial heart valve or an artificial knee or hip, and they're going to go to the dentist for uh, a routine visit where they're going to do some probing and stir some bacteria along the goom line, they will take a low-dose antibiotic for one or two days just to prevent the bacteria from lodging in these artificial valves and, and, and mm-hmm. joints. Sure. That is a one or two day course. It's, it, so that's what you might call subtherapeutic, but it's therapeutic for that particular purpose. So anyhow, back to your question then. Let's go to the superbugs. You mentioned superbugs just a little bit ago. Sure. Salmonella Heidelberg, Salmonella Newport. I mean, there are like 15 or 16 new strains of Salmonella that are resistant to multiple antibiotics. There's MRSA, which may or may not be uh, implicated in the livestock industry, but certainly is now being shown to transfer from hogs to workers. Um, that's been documented. So, I mean, we do have kind of a public health crisis on our hands here. And I'm, I'm, I have to say that I'm really surprised that the medical community has not joined together to, um, you know, create some sort of comprehensive study and response to this. Okay. Let's go with the MRSA first. That's for your listeners. That's methicillin resistant Staphylococcus aureus. Methicillin uh, within a year of its discovery, there was already MRSA discovered, and methicillin had never been used in animal husbandry at that time. Penicillin itself was discovered in 1943, and by 1950, 50% of Staphylococcus that grew out from intensive care units in hospitals, 50% were resistant to penicillin by 1950. Mm-hmm. Penicillin was not approved for use in animals yet at that time. So back to your question about the medical community. I think the medical community, and I am a retired family physician, I think the medical community realizes most of this resistance is coming from use of antibiotics in humans. There is is some risk of using it in animals also. I'm not denying that. But I'm just saying a lot of the history of antibiotic-resistant bacteria come probably from the use in humans, some, some bacteria just develop resistance real quickly. You can use a full therapeutic dose. You can make a person well, but there's still some of those bacteria left in the body that have already developed resistance to whatever antibiotic was used. We sure. also know that a lot of people don't take the full dose that the doctor prescribes. They get feeling right. better. The medicine tastes yucky. They get tired of fighting their kids to take it, whatever. And so those become subtherapeutic. Uh, doses of antibiotics also. And there's an overuse of antibiotics in human medicine also. And, and I'm guilty of it. I'm not pointing a finger at the other doctors. When I was practicing medicine and had to see 50, 60 patients a day because that was the load that one that were sick, and I was the only doctor in town for a while, mm-hmm. you don't have time to explain to every person that it's probably just a virus and they should go home and just take something over the counter after they just drove 50 miles to see you. So, yeah, sometimes I would prescribe, you know, uh, an antibiotic, not a, not a methicillin or a ciprofloxin or some you know big ones, but overprescribed is 
unfortunately common in human medicine, too. Well, that's certainly true. I mean, I, my daughter's pediatrician told me uh, several years after the fact um, she had been treated for ear infections with Augmentin, which was methicil- or penicillin and some sort of something that boosted it. And right. um, he told me that he basically had been lied to by the pharmaceutical industry and that the, that the overprescription of uh, antibiotics for ear infections in young children had actually led to, again, a creation of superbugs. But to go back to the... I'm, I'm just going to um, say one thing that I have... I've learned because I have done a lot of reading about this. I've had quite a few guests on um, discussing this. 80% of the pharmaceuticals of the antibiotics that are produced in this country are fed into the livestock system. So, um, yes, uh, human medicine is certainly, um, you know, at fault for over oversubscribing to penis, to antibiotics in their human patients, uh, as I've just described with my pediatrician, but it's when 80% of the production of antibiotics is, is funneled into the livestock agriculture sector, then I think there is something uh, more at play than just... Um, well, I think we have to point a little bit more of a finger, shall we say, at the livestock industry. And, you know, I'm not trying to, to put you on the spot here, but um, what do you see uh, as some of the greatest challenges to changing those current practices of using human medicines to promote growth and control disease in animals? Do you think that it's possible for the cattle or the livestock industry to, uh, say, abandon the model that they have now of confined area feeding operations, which is largely uh, what produces the need for um, low-dose antibiotic use? Well, to produce the amount of meat and poultry that we need to feed America and to help solve some of the suffering from hunger in the world, Mm -hmm. uh, these uh, concentrated animal feeding operations or CAFOs are probably going to continue to be in existence. There are some who would like us to bar, ban the use of antibiotics except for full therapeutic uses when an animal actually has an infection, and that's, that's, that's just not possible when you have 30 thousand pullets in one grow-out facility, uh, you know, if a few of those birds get coccidiosis, all those birds are going to get coccidiosis, mm-hmm. and you either use full-dose uh, antibiotics for 30,000 birds, or you try to prevent the infection in the first place with a low-dose ionophore, which is not used in human medicine. Right. So to eliminate all of those antibiotics will eliminate CAFOs, which is what some people would like to see, but that will drive the price of meat and protein up to where a lot of people can't afford it. And well, again, there are other... Co- some I mean- of the people I talk to say that's a good thing. We won't feed protein to our kids and they won't be obese and I you know I take I, I, I differ with that philosophy. I totally also. differ with that. I don't think feeding protein to kids is what's making them fat. It's feeding them soda. I, you and I agree, but I'm, <laughs> there, there's just some that say, well, there's some people who don't want us to eat animals, don't want us to raise animals for well, food. Well, just to clarify my own position on that, because I know you, you've made a little joke when we were corresponding about um, whether or not I eat hamburgers. I'm just going to let you know right now, Doc, I am a card-carrying carnivore. Okay, good. I love well, my meat. In fact, so, I love so meat I more than anything else. Out the small fringe that want to that want to eliminate antibiotic use except for full therapeutic doses as someone who has a different agenda so from now that we won't discuss their issues we will discuss the use of growth promotants and that's what the uh, FDA is is coming around voluntarily to e- eliminate growth promotants as the industry discovers other ways to reduce or prevent uh, some of these infections that would threaten a herd or a flock mm-hmm. and I know the, the American Veterinary Medical Association has come out basically in support of this effort by the FDA, saying they believe in the judicious use of antibiotics, certainly not the injudicious use of antibiotics, and I could say that for human and animal medicine. Uh-huh. Uh, but I still think we need to keep the antibiotics available for control or prevention along with therapeutic, just as I mentioned the human example. 
Right, right. Uh, if if my uh, my children are now through college, but if they were living in a dormitory and two people in the dorm came down with Neisseria meningitis, everybody in that dorm is going to get a what some people would call a subtherapeutic, but low dose course of penicillin or some other antibiotic to prevent the spread of that particular deadly disease. Mm-hmm. And we, we need to keep that available, I think, for the animal husbandry industry. But there are those who would ban that use of antibiotics in animals, too. I have that, to say, I, I, believe, I would agree with that. That leads to animal suffering, position. animal disease, animal death. And that's not, I don't think too many people want to see that happen. No, no, nobody wants to see animals right. suffer. And everybody, I think most people agree that when an animal is sick, you have to treat it. Um, I think the problem is, is what we've discussed before, which is this low dose uh, for growth promotion or disease prevention. And, and just, I want to move on from this topic now, but um, okay. um, I do want to say that, for example, in New Zealand, where, you know, they're the second largest exporter of lamb in the world, and somehow they managed to avoid, um, you know, both the confined area feeding operation model and the use of um, <clears throat> low-dose antibiotics. Anyway, let's move on. Well, I am wait, an, before we move on to yeah. <laughs> New Zealand, I want to bring up Denmark. Because 10 years ago, Denmark banned the use of antibiotics as growth promotants in all animals. Mm-hmm. And since that time, they actually use more antibiotics in their animals than they did before because of the diseases that are more prevalent. So okay. there, there's a give and a take, and we Point need to taken, learn sir. from other countries' experiences and probably look for ways to do what we do better. I agree, uh, with, you. I yep. agree with you wholeheartedly. Okay, very good. I'm glad we feel that way because okay. um, I wouldn't want to argue anymore with you. Now, um, <laughs> let's move on to this. I am an avid reading of, reader of MeetingPlace.com. Of course, that's how I know about you. And I've read many of the comments on articles, which I always find incredibly interesting. In fact, they're often much more interesting than the article itself because they people get so heated. Do you ever read the blogs or you know the, the responses to articles? Do you read that part? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's unbelievable what goes on. I, I didn't Sarge. Read it when I was undersecretary for food safety, A, I didn't have time, and B, it just made me furious. Yeah. <laughs> well, that I can understand. Um, yeah, I feel quite infuriated. But there are several um, characters that show up all the time. It's, you know, they obviously have nothing better to do than to comment on these articles. And Sarge Gravert is one of them, and he's obviously an old meat, you know, a meat guy. I don't know what he did, processor or whatever, ran probably a small well, slaughterhouse. He, he ran a plant, but he also actually used to work for the USDA. Oh, is the, that right? Uh, agriculture marketing services. Yeah, he, he cracks a, he me up. And then there's B B E. You know, Beatrice. Have you come across her? She's she's on my side, or well, I shouldn't say she's on my side. She's a little too earthy country for me, but um, she really gives as good as she gets. I think she's really terrific. Anyway, so I read this all the time, and I find that whenever um, an issue of foodborne illness comes up, um, the folks in the meat industry are the first to blame the consumer. So. You know, is that really a legitimate position to take? I mean, realistically, uh, what you know, cooking burgers and steaks to 160, uh, you know, not everybody's taste is that. Disinfecting your blade when you're cutting, uh, you know, um, disinfecting your cutting surfaces, uh, bleaching your sponges, your dish towels, et cetera, et cetera. It's almost impossible to avoid cross-contamination. Washing leafy grease and get away from meat for a second and acknowledge that the produce sector is just as guilty of, uh, you know, foodborne illness outbreaks. Washing your leafy greens and your fruit does not, in fact, decontaminate it. So what is a consumer supposed to do? And don't you think that producers and processors have more of an obligation to provide a safe product? That was a long question. I know. Uh, I'll try to remember all parts of it. First of well, all, I, think I think the main thing is don't producers... I mean, <laughs> blaming the consumer is an easy way to pass the buck. 
I, I, Let me break it down for you. Blame, blame I, I the consumer. And you're passing the buck. When we read those meeting place comments, I call that the just cook it crowd. Yeah, right. And exactly. You, and you forgot to mention Douglas Craven, who is one of oh, the yeah. leaders of the just cook it crowd. Oh, yeah. He's a, he's guy, a leader in that called Old Meat Man from Florida and mm-hmm. Meat Man. And oh. there, there, there's about two dozen. Yeah. That are in that crowd that can, anytime I write a blog about something the industry should do, it's always just cook it. So I just ignore them. I, and it's one of the reasons I wrote a recent blog about a foodborne illness that I suffered from. It was from a Staph aureus toxin Yikes. from eating vegetables in a restaurant. Right. Just cook it doesn't work for lettuce and spinach. No, it and, doesn't. And I'm not in total control when I'm eating at, you know, at a church bazaar or a, a, you know, a tailgate party or whatever. And so it's not that easy. And so back but the other part of your question is, consumers have some responsibility. They need to understand that raw meat should not be considered sterile. Mm-hmm. They need to understand that they can get sick from eating spinach, lettuce, tomatoes, anything that can't here or on the ground that can be cross-contaminated. That <laughs> sure. happens. It's in the environment. Let's just say mm-hmm. it. The meat industry does not often come out and say raw meat should not be considered sterile. You need to do a better job of handling it. They, they don't like to say that about their product, but I say it, especially now that I'm not working for the USDA, I can say it frequently. Yeah. So I think consumers need to be educated, need to do what they can as the last line of defense, understanding that half of our meals come from someplace else other than our home, so we can't. And cross-contamination in the home is a serious problem. I agree with you 100%. We do not bleach our towels here in our household, but we do try to use one cutting board for for raw meats and then put it in the dishwasher and not right. use it again and, and clean the top off. But I agree with you. You can't do it 100%. So therefore, therefore, the industry continues to look for ways to produce a safer product. They, they don't want people to get sick from eating their product. They don't want lawsuits. Yeah, uh, they do what they can, I believe, and they want other processing aids made available to them, like whole carcass low dose irradiation, which has not been made available to them as a processing aid, but would greatly reduce the amount of contamination on a carcass. Well, we're going to take a quick break here because I'm going to come back to that, okay. um, and I'm also going to come back to this Bloomberg article, um, which talks a lot about uh, third party auditing, which I think is really uh, key to this whole processing and producer aspect of it. So, Joe, can you run our little commercial? And, uh, Doc, stay on the line because we'll be right back with Dr. Richard Raymond, uh, former undersecretary for the USDA and now a um, you know consultant and blogger and all-around knowledgeable guy about food safety and public health. Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons. Edwards Suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color. The Edwards name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats. Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. Optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit www.surreyfarms.com. And we are back on Street Note Chaser. I'm your host, Katie Kiever, and we're broadcasting live from Roberta's. This is the Heritage Radio Network. And my guest today is Dr. Richard Raymond, a former Undersecretary of Health uh, during the Bush administration and who was um, very much uh, involved in food safety and inspection service, um, which basically is overseeing what we get to eat. So, Doc, we were talking a second ago about irradiation of a cow, uh, cow's carcass. And um, personally speaking, I don't have any problem with the use of irradiation. We've been doing it to spices for years. 
years. I don't have a problem. I don't, I don't see anything wrong with it, but it's scary to people. Um, but what, what I want to bring up when we were talking a minute ago about the obligation of the producer, the processor, uh, to have some more uh, sense of control over what's happening in their plants before it actually reaches the consumer, since we both agreed it's very hard for consumers um, to you know keep that cross-contamination issue down and to know exactly what to do to keep their fruits and vegetables safe, etc. Um, the food, one of the article, one of the pieces in this um, Bloomberg article, which I strongly urge you to read, um, the food industry hires for-profit inspection companies known as third-party auditors who are not required by law to meet any federal standards and have no government supervision. Some of these monitors choose to follow guidelines from trade groups that include ConAgra. Craft Foods and Walmart, um, but the private inspectors that companies select often check only those areas their clients ask them to review. So th- that was certainly the case in the Jensen Farms outbreak of cantaloupes last year. Um, so when we talk about um, producers being um, you know, more responsible, how, with the limited budget that the FDA has for uh, food safety, how can they um, change their protocols to make uh, third-party auditors or food producers more accountable? Oh, I'm not sure. Uh, but for just a second, let's Doesn't point that out. Doesn't that scare you, we, though? Pardon? Aren't you scared by the fact that it's third-party auditing that is being oh, hired I, by the actual company itself? Yeah, uh, yeah. But I wanted to point out for the listeners that the meat and poultry industry are under daily continuous inspection by the food safety inspection system. So when we're talking right. about third-party audits, we're primarily talking about produce and That's other right. food products that, yes. under, that come under the regulation of the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA. They're, they're two separate entities. And, and third-party audits have been shown to fail miserably. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of the Food sure Safety Modernization Act would, would put more requirements on these auditors, but, but again, that has obviously been proven to fail. I think it's. I think the industry itself has to step up and set standards that are 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 good. And I think some some in the industry are trying to do that. They realize a Jensen Farm or a Salinas Valley spinach outbreak. Mm-hmm. Uh, those outbreaks hurt the whole industry that produces that product. It's not just the farm, and sure. so they they need to they need to weed out the bottom feeders and take stronger action. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I, I will never buy That's another cantaloupe. Expertise. <laughs> I mean, I will not buy another cantaloupe that doesn't come from a farm that I know. And, you know, a small farm. I think, Look, you know, one of the things... A lot of here are New Jensen Farms. You know, it's not that far from where I live. Yeah, and, right. And, 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 you know, buy local is the big thing. And so, by golly, we're going to buy local Colorado <laughs> muskmelon and cantaloupe. And, and it, it, it doesn't always work out that well. But it's the large... I, I find that it's the large operators that have the greatest risk for these foodborne outbreaks. I mean, you have to admit that's true, right? Wouldn't well, you agree with that? Product, Come on, so Doc. more possibility of infections, yeah. and if the more infections, the better chance you have of tracing it back to the source. So a small operator may produce a tainted product, but there aren't that many people get sick from it, and so perhaps the outbreak source is never noted, too. That's, that's, I mean, that's a factor. That could also. also be true. Absolutely. Now, let's move on here, because uh, you just mentioned poultry and you know how there are inspectors in poultry, and one of the questions I had for you was that there was recently, and I did a program about this back in April, there was a proposal to reduce the number of inspectors in poultry processing facilities, and along with a concurrent increase in production speed, meaning that they would move the chain speed or move the number of fowl 
mile uh, per minute um, up. And they were saying that they don't need the inspectors at the top of the of the line. In other words, uh, supervising the slaughtering, examining the carcass, and so forth. They need them at the end of the line, where they would be, uh, you know, looking at microscopic uh, slides of potential, you know, pathogens in these animals. Now, do you? First of all, has what's gone? What's happened with that proposal? Because I haven't followed up. It's, it, it has is it actually happening? Yet. No, but, but it is going to be. It, well, the the. The food safety inspection system of the USDA would like it to be. Why? See, that, 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 this is just exactly why I wanted you to answer this question. Yeah. Why is that going to make us safer to have um, you know, a company-hired auditor, essentially a third-party auditor, um, hired by you know, Tyson Poultry or whatever, to look at the carcasses before they come down the line? I mean, aren't we going to see a lot more like funky-looking chickens? You no. think that actually looking at uh, you know microscopic slides of something is is going to do the job? Uh, first of all, uh, I want to uh, before we kick industry too much. I want to point out that the poultry industry as a whole has reduced the amount of contaminated carcasses from seventeen percent to six percent because of something called the Salmonella Initiative Program that we put mm-hmm. forth while I was at the USDA. So back to a question 15 minutes ago, industry can do better, they should do better, they will do better sometimes if given proper incentives, and they did with the Salmonella Initiative Program. Now, mm-hmm. 6% of carcasses contaminated with salmonella is still way too many. When the inspectors that are currently in, the, in most of the poultry plants have birds that can go by at 145 birds per minute. <laughs> that, That's that is, really that some heavy-duty inspection, that, right, dude? That is about 0.4 seconds per bird. Yeah. So what all are you they, inspecting? All that inspector is, can do in that limited amount of time is look for obvious bruising, fractured legs, fractured wings, and they pull that carcass off the line. Right. They're doing quality control for Tyson's Poultry uh-huh. or for Purdue Farms or right. whoever. They're doing quality control. You can spot a septic bird, a funky bird, from, a, from across the room. I mean, if a bird is septic, that is a, that is a white bird compared to the normal color of a bird. Mm-hmm. And they wouldn't be third-party auditors that would be on the line. They actually would be employees of the, of the plant looking, doing quality control, looking for broken legs and wings. Right. And, and that's what the inspectors are doing. They're paid by you and me, by our tax dollars, to do quality control for the company. Now, when... HACCP, which stands for Hazard Analysis and Critical Control Points, was rolled out in the late 1990s. Mm-hmm. That, that, and it said all, all industry, all meat and poultry, must have a HACCP plan by a certain time period, which they all do now. Yeah. The FSIS, before I, before I went there, said now that the plants are primarily responsible for identifying and controlling points where contamination could occur, our, our inspection style is going to change. That makes some sense. And they uh, said that plants can do their own quality control, and we'll, our inspectors will spend more time, our inspectors spend more time doing, the microbiolo- doing microbiological swabs, and sampling, yeah. and reviewing the half of plants to make sure they're adequate and all, all of this. And they rolled this out in about 15 poultry plants and five swine plants, and a judge said, no, wait a minute, that's too radical of a change. You can't do that until you have proven that that's at least as safe as the current method of inspection. And so the judge allowed them to continue to have 20, they're called hemp plants, HACCP Implementation Model Program. So over the last decade and a half, those 20 plants have records, the statistical records of for instance, the microbiological sampling for salmonella, and they are better 
than the traditional plants that still use the same mm -hmm. style of inspection that was signed into law by President Eisenhower in 1957. <laughs> Okay, enough said on that. We unfortunately have to wrap it up. I'm actually going a yeah. little over, but I do want, there's one more thing that uh, I want to bring to your attention. Now, in a recent blog, and this is one of the things that makes me love you, Doc, um, in a recent blog about an egg farm, you remarked, if the ag business wants to reduce the number of stories and exposés making them look careless and unconcerned about our health and safety, then they need to stop giving up such easy targets to the regulators and the media. And you said as much the same thing last month when the Central Valley Cattle Process plant was busted for inhumane practices. So I have to ask you, Doc, why does animal ag keep exposing themselves this way? And then, incredibly enough, they blame people like me, you know, HSUS, the consumers, PETA, all the rest of us tree-hugging commie pinkos for getting mad at them. I think that's a little unfair, don't you? Uh, absolutely. And, and I got to <laughs> say, it's not just the, the meat industry. You've got Peanut Corporation of America. Sure. You know, we, oh, my God. Yeah. With that Trader Joe's recall right now. Yeah. Farms. They, people cut corners. Yeah. Driven by profit motives. And I do not believe that is the majority of the people in the food industry. I believe it is a minority, but they continue to give a black eye to the whole industry as a whole. And uh, it, it's just it's just ridiculous, and no, they can't blame Peter for having someone undercover. Uh, that Central Valley Farm uh, or meat company that has yeah. the inhumane. The, the, you you read meeting place. You read all the rebloggers that oh, said the FSS inspectors should have their heads handed to them on a platter. They should oh, all yeah. be fired. They're sleeping on the job. That's just not true. They're not out in the pens 24 hours a day. They are rejecting, you know, those inspectors are looking at carcasses and rejecting carcasses because it's tainted meat. They're doing everything they can to protect our health. Inhumane handling is the plant's obligation. Yes. And uh, I, I must say that, that FSAS shuts down about 10 plants a year for inhumane handling. Uh -huh. The only ones that you read about are the ones where there's an undercover agent, and that's because they take it to the media and make a big splash. Mm. So there are other plants that have inhumane handling practices also. You just don't read about them. That's so they, true. They've got to stop that. Yeah. It's just yeah. so easy to get caught. I know. It's so stupid, too. And it's like so <laughs> gross. It's like, oh, please. It's so gross. Well, unfortunately, Dr. Raymond, we have to wrap it up here. And I, I really hope you'll come back because uh, on the heels of this discussion about inhumane and HSUS videos and undercover and whatnot, we should be talking about the agricultural gag laws that are going into effect all yeah, over our yeah. country. <laughs> so um, I hope you will come back as a guest. I Anytime. really enjoy this. You're a wonderful, uh, act, you know, articulate spokesman for the industry and also for, you know, like sort of keeping the hysteria at bay because frankly at this point especially after i read this bloomberg article i was like ready to you know go back to the <laughs> land um so i want to thank my sponsor thank you very much dr raymond i want to thank my sponsor uh sam edwards as always and um next week my friends we have the fabulous dr dixon de pommier the mac daddy of vertical farming and eric cutter a guy out in california who is actually running a farm a vertical farm called alegria farms um that is making waves uh through the agricultural sector so um come back next week for more from the incredible dixon de pommier he really is so fabulous and thanks again to my engineer joe and i'll see you next week this has been straight no chaser i'm your host katie Kiefer. so long for now bye bye Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. 
You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.